Awesome. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. We're so glad to have you guys here as uh, we're actually starting a new series today in the book of Amos, as you can probably tell from that video. And uh, this is our fourth service this week. It's the fourth time I saw that video, and I still get chills watching that. I don't know about you guys. I think it's the Batman music that's playing in the background. I'm just like, this is so epic. This is going to be an awesome series. And, uh, and actually, I don't even know how to follow that, that video up. It was so good. So I thought maybe we'd just close in prayer and uh, be dismissed. <laughs> Don't cheer for that. That's not good. <laughs> but man, we're so, so glad you guys are able to be with us here uh, today, like I said, as we're starting a new series in Amos. And I do, uh, I do just want to say, too, that if you're a guest with us here uh, today for the first time, um, I really am excited that you're here. I think you came at a great time. We oftentimes say that the beginning of a series is, is the best opportunity to kind of get connected to the life of the church. And so if you're just trying to figure out, you know, what is Grace Church all about? Is this the church for me? Uh, I would actually challenge you, I would kind of encourage you maybe just to, to decide today to lock in with us for the duration of this series. Uh, what that'll give you an opportunity to do is it'll give you an opportunity to kind of hear this whole conversation uh, for the next several weeks in the book of Amos. But hopefully it'll also give you a chance to get to know us, to get to know what our heart is, a little bit about our church. And uh, we would love to get a chance to get to know you as well. And, uh, and so hopefully we'll get a chance to do that if you are newer here to Grace. And so thanks so much for being here if you are a guest. Uh, but like I said, um, Amos starting this series and this incredible book in the Old Testament, really small but incredible book in the Old Testament. And as we kind of jump into this, let me just start by, by asking you guys a little guest participation. Uh, by show of hands, how many of you have actually read the book of Amos at some point or another? Just at a Actually, okay, that's actually kind of surprising. I shouldn't be too surprised because you guys are the 11 o'clock service, and so that's a good thing. But, uh, but actually, if you didn't raise your hand, don't feel bad about that at all. As a matter of fact, uh, you are actually part of the majority. Uh, most people have never read the book of Amos. In fact, there might be many of us who would even say, I've never even heard of the book of Amos. And the truth is, this is, like I said, a relatively small kind of obscure book uh, that is found in the Old Testament. It's short. It's nine chapters. And so because of that, because it's kind of this obscure little book of the Old Testament, it is oftentimes overlooked and oftentimes it's not read. And, uh, and so in this series, we're kind of pumped about going through this book because I think what we're going to find is that even though this is oftentimes a neglected book, it is a really powerful book of the Bible. And the message that we're going to see in the book of Amos is incredibly relevant to us today. And so I'm excited as we kind of get a chance to, to go through this series and look at some of this together. So... Let's go ahead as we, as we jump in and, and let's open our Bibles and get right to work and go to Amos chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you grab them with me and we're going to flip over to Amos chapter 1. So we're going to start Amos 1.1. 1, 1. It's a great place to start as we get into this book. And so grab your Bibles. If you um, brought your own Bible with you today, that's great. Thanks for doing that. Uh, if you need to look into your table of contents to find Amos, there's absolutely no shame in that, all right? So don't be afraid that your neighbor is going to judge you for looking in the table of contents. And if they do, that's, that's their problem anyway, not yours. And, uh, and so Amos 1. And of course, if you want to use one of our Bibles, we have some black Bibles that are out there uh, underneath the chairs. You can turn to page 637. That's where you're going to find Amos chapter 1. So go ahead and get there. However you get there, Amos chapter 1 is where we're going to be going uh, to start this morning. Now, as you're finding that, leafing through your Bibles, um, let me just kind of start with a quick story that I think will kind of help uh, give us sort of a feel for what this series is all about and what the book of Amos is all about. So uh, there was a story that emerged back in 2014, so it was a few years ago. Uh, it actually made world headlines. And so there's a small chance that maybe you've even read this story, but it's about a family uh, called the Chambers family that lived out in uh, Jersey. And, and when I say Jersey, I don't mean New Jersey. I mean, they meant the, 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 uh, the island Jersey between France and England. And so apparently this family, uh, the Chambers family, had six kids, uh, lived over in Jersey, so had a lot of kids, kind of a big family. And so one day, um, the mother of this family decided that she was going to take her six kids along with one of her friends and, and her kids, so a whole group of kids, and they were going to go spend a day at the beach. So I don't know much about Jersey, but one thing that I do know is that Jersey is actually uh, has a pretty high reputation for its beautiful beaches. And so one day, uh, this mother and her six kids and a friend and some other kids decided uh, they were going to go spend a day at the beach, which was kind of a typical thing that they would do uh, whenever they had a day off or whatever. So went to the beach, and of course, all the kids are playing, having a good time, kind of your typical day at the beach, playing in the water, building sand castles, all that kind of stuff. And apparently in this story, at some point or another, the, the two mothers diverted their attention, uh, not for a very long amount of time, for a pretty short amount of time, but when they finally came back to kind of check up on the kids, 
uh, she had realized, this mother of the Chambers family had realized that her four-year-old, her four-year-old's name was Jemima, uh, was nowhere to be found. And so just, I mean, you know, every parent's nightmare. And so she's trying not to panic, and so she started to look for her daughter. She looked in the bathrooms. She checked the beach. And, and finally, she went over to where all the kids were. The kids were still kind of playing there in the sand and the water. And so she went over and she asked him. She said, has anyone seen Jemima? Have you seen your little sister? And, and when she asked that question, the kids all collectively pointed out to the ocean. And when she looked, she kind of raised her eyes, and she looked at the horizon. And there on the horizon, what appeared to be about a half mile out from where they were, was just a little dot that was floating there on the horizon. And so she, of course, was just terrified, just absolutely terrified. And so she was trying to figure out, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out there? Is she okay? She couldn't swim. So they're trying to figure out. You just imagine the, the, the terror of this moment. And so luckily, uh, there was a man who at that very same time was just getting ready to pull his jet ski out of the water. So she ran over to him and she said, sir, you've got to help me. My daughter is all the way out there, and she pointed to where the little dot was on the horizon. She says, you've got to take me there. So, of course, this guy, being a decent human being, just like any of you would do, said, yeah, absolutely, get on the back. So she jumps on the back, and they, they, they get out there as fast as they possibly can. And it's interesting, when you read the story, they talk about how uh, when they started to approach uh, where the dot was on the horizon, it became pretty clear to them when they got close that, indeed, it was Jemima, that the dot on the horizon was her, uh, but she appeared to be lifeless, floating there. And so so scared of what they were going to find, they kept going. And when they got closer, they came to realize it looked like she was passed out, but she was actually on a boogie board, right? You guys know what a boogie board is, one of those little flotation boards? She's sitting out there on this boogie board. So when they finally arrived, what they came to find out had happened was that she was not lifeless, but in fact, she was asleep. And so I guess what happened was that she was playing with the other friends and her other, her other you know, family members. And apparently, as she was playing in the shallow water on this boogie board, she got tired and she fell asleep. And when she fell asleep, because of the undertow and because of the wind and because of the current, she had drifted over half a mile from the shore. And so uh, when they finally got there, it's interesting, the story explains that when they woke her up, when this gentleman and this mother woke her up, she was totally oblivious to anything that had happened. And so she was shocked. She was like, Mom, why are you so scared? And who is this man on a jet ski? And why am I half a mile from the shore, and she had absolutely no idea, but she was totally, totally, totally fine. In fact, I thought it was cool. I'll show you a picture. This is a picture of little Jemima, a little four-year-old. That's her boogie board that she floated over half a mile over on when she fell asleep on that, and I love that name. Don't you guys love that name, Jemima? That's such a fun, cute little name for a little four-year-old, but you know, it's interesting. When I was, uh, when I was reading this story, um, I, my guess is, like you, especially for those of us who are parents in this room, my guess is that you, you feel the relief of what it must have been like for that mother when she went out and found that her daughter was okay, that she had simply fallen asleep. You could feel that. But at the same time, when you hear that story, you can also feel the dread. You can also feel the great fear of, of man, this story could have ended so much differently. Uh, this story, which ended so happily, it really could have been a tragedy, right? Uh, if they had not seen her when they had seen her, if that man with the jet ski hadn't been there when he was there, man, who knows how this story could have ended. It could have ended much, much, much differently, and I'm so glad that it didn't. Now, why in the world would I tell you a story like that? Well, here's why I tell you the story, because I think in a weird way, if you can understand that story, you can actually understand what the purpose and what the reason the book of Amos was written for. And here's what I mean. What we're going to find in this series is the book of Amos was actually written to be a wake-up call. Now, the book of Amos was intended to be a wake-up call issued by God to his people, to God's chosen people in a time when they had drifted dangerously far from God's heart. And what we're going to see is that Amos is written in a time, it's a prophecy that was written uh, by God to his people, the Israelites, in a time when the Israelites, who were God's people, called by his name, called to represent his heart, the Bible's going to tell us that they had drifted dangerously far from the places that God wanted them to be, and they were completely unaware that it was happening. And so listen, one of the reasons that we're doing this series together is not just because it tells us about how God issued a wake-up call to his people back then, but I think one of the reasons that we're going through this series is because we're going to find that Amos continues to be a wake-up call to God's people even today. And I think what we're going to find is that for those of us who follow Jesus, which by the way, I, I know that in a room this size, not everyone in here follows Jesus. Some of you 
maybe are still investigating the whole God thing and you're still trying to figure that out, which by the way, uh, we, we say this all the time, we, if you're investigating Christ, uh, we consider it an honor that you would allow us to be part of that investigation. And so you could do anything you want with your Sunday morning, but, but you're here. And so we, we absolutely consider that a privilege. But let me just say, for those of us who follow Christ, what we're gonna find is that we are just as susceptible to this dangerous drift, to an unconscious drift that can take place that we, we can get dangerously far from God's heart in the places that God wants for us to be. And so that's what we're gonna see in this series. And that's why I believe the book of Amos is so important and is so significant. It's a wake-up call. You're going to find that the book of Amos, quite honestly, it's an alarming book. It's a jolting book. It's a jarring book. But it is a means of God's grace. It's a means of God's grace to, to wake up God's people and the ways that we've drifted and to call us to return back to his heart. And so that's why we're looking at this book together. So let's, let's go ahead and take a look. We're going to start in uh, Amos chapter 1, verse 1. And let me just give you a little bit of background about the book of Amos. So today is actually just kind of an introduction. I want to introduce you to kind of what the book of Amos is about, a little bit of some of the major themes. And the next several weeks, we're going to dig pretty deep into it. But let's go ahead and just lay down some context. Amos chapter 1, we'll start off in verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision that he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was the king of Judah and Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, was the king of Israel. Okay, so let's just stop there for a second. Uh, my guess is when you read uh, through verse one, it's probably pretty easy for your eyes to get glazed over. It's full of a bunch of people you've probably never heard of and some places you've never heard of. But the reason that verse one is so important is because verse one establishes for us some very key context. Okay, so, so first off, what we're gonna see in verse one is it actually tells us a little bit about this dude, Amos. Okay, so let me just talk about him for a minute. So Amos, just so you know, he is the guy that is credited for having written the book of Amos. Uh, Amos was a, a prophet. And, uh, and just real quick, if you're, if you're, maybe you've heard the term prophet before, but you might be thinking, what exactly is a prophet? Well, let me just kind of give you a quick snapshot. A prophet was actually someone in the Old Testament uh, who was, if you could think about it this way, they were like a spokesperson for God. And so when God wanted to deliver a message to his people in the Old Testament, one of the common means by which he did that was through a prophet. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 in the Bible, it actually says this. It says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, through Jesus. And so the Bible says that there was a period in time when, the, when God's primary means of communication to his people was through the prophets. And one of those prophets was Amos. But what we're going to see is that Amos was not your typical prophet. There's some stuff that set Amos apart from some of his contemporaries and some of the other prophets in the Bible. And let me just kind of show you what I mean by that. I want you to notice here, the Bible says about Amos that he was from a place called Tekoa, okay? Now, again, that might not mean anything to us, but Tekoa, uh, back in this time, it would have been a kind of a small village, uh, not a big city by any stretch of the imagination. It was sort of a farming community. Uh, it was in the hill country, which would have been south of Jerusalem. In fact, I'll just kind of show you a map here. This is where modern-day Israel would be. So here you have Jerusalem. And then just a few miles south of Jerusalem is this place called Tekoa. This is where Amos would be from. Now, here's what I think is so fascinating about Tekoa. It's a small town. It's kind of a farming village. It's uh, really, really small. But what I think is interesting is you can actually still go visit Tekoa today. It still exists. It's still called Tekoa. It's still a small town. I've actually never been there, but I, this past week, I decided that I was going to go on Google Earth, and I was like, I'm just going to see what Tekoa looks like. And so I went on, kind of got an aerial view, and I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. And I thought something, I saw something on Google Earth I thought was interesting. I thought I'd share it with you. This is kind of nerdy, but I thought it was interesting. This is, uh, this is Tekoa. So this is the aerial uh, image. And what I thought was so fascinating, besides the fact that there's a beauty salon uh, here, is if you notice, there is a street that runs all the way around the center of town, a very small town. And do you notice what the name of the street is? You guys see it? It's Amos Street. And I was like, no way, that's so cool. So not only is Amos made famous from the little bags of cookies we commemorate him with, he has a street. He's got a street name after him. And so if you ever find yourself in Tekoa, you can go to Amos Street, and that would be kind of a cool thing. But he, he was from a small town, and here's, here's the thing that really sets him apart. The Bible says that he was a shepherd. Uh, he was a shepherd. Now, now, here's what's fascinating. We're going to find that Amos was not a professional prophet. In other words, uh, Amos was not a professional preacher. He didn't go to Bible school. He didn't go to seminary. By vocation, he was a shepherd. 
As a matter of fact, Amos is going to say about himself in chapter 7, we're going to see this later on in the series, Amos is going to say, I'm not a professional prophet. I was never trained to be one. I'm just a shepherd, and I take care of sycamore fig trees, which I don't know what all that includes, but he's like, I'm a shepherd, I take care of some sycamore fig trees. But the Lord called me away from my flock, and he told me, go and prophesy to the people in Israel. So, So here's what I love about Amos. See, uh, many of the other prophets in, in the Old Testament that you see, uh, they were professional prophets. Uh, they would go to school to be prophets. They would come from a family lineage of prophets. Uh, they would be paid to be prophets. But you can see that Amos was not that way. As a matter of fact, Clark, the guy that gave announcements up here earlier, he said Amos was a non-for-profit prophet. And uh, <laughs> after he made that joke, I fired him because it was so bad. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, Amos was just not your typical prophet. When you look at his, his vocation, he was a shepherd, he was a sycamore fig tree farmer when God called him to preach. You kind of get this idea, Amos was just sort of an average guy. Uh, he was sort of a country guy. Uh, he was sort of a hillbilly. You kind of got a hillbilly prophet here. And when God calls Amos, the hillbilly prophet, I want you to notice he calls him to preach to Israel, which we're going to find in the series, Israel at this point in history was one of the most established nations Uh, They were incredibly wealthy, incredibly affluent. They had established themselves as a strong military power. And so when God calls Amos to preach, listen, it's like a hillbilly going into this incredibly established, prestigious community, affluent community. Very, very unlikely. This this would be like God uh, calling a farmer from Seville to go preach in Beverly Hills, right? And and by the way, if if you're from Seville, I'm sorry that I said that. I'm actually not sorry I said that. I'm sorry you're from Seville. Um, okay, no booze this, this service. I got a bunch of booze yesterday, and I said, well, hey, if you're from Seville, the best thing you got going for you is that you're not from Doylestown. So that's good. And uh, yeah, you're laughing because it's true. That's good. Doylestown, right on. Yeah, anyway, so, so he's this small town guy called to preach this big place. It's a little bit about Amos. The Bible tells us about him. By the way, I think that what Amos does for us is it really is an awesome case study of how God uses average people to do supernatural things. Here you got Amos. Amos is just kind of an average dude working a job, loves God. God calls him, and he goes, and he preaches, and God uses him in powerful ways. A little bit about Amos. Notice this. Next thing, the Bible says that God gives him a vision to preach against Israel. This was two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was the king of Judah and Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, was the king of Israel. Now, why is that important? Well, well again, these are some details that maybe we're not familiar with, but what, why this is important is because it helps us understand when this book was written. It actually gives us a picture into the historical context. And so let me just show you a couple things. Notice it says, first off, it was two years before an earthquake. Uh, now, uh, archaeologists and uh, historians uh, verify Uh, that indeed there was a seismic earthquake that took place in this region of the world about this time here. Uh, We can see that Uzziah was the king. He would have been the king of Judah, which was the southern kingdom in Israel. And we can see that here Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, that's actually Jeroboam II, uh, that he was the king in the northern kingdom of Israel where Amos was called to preach. Now, why is that important? Well, here's why it's important. It helps us establish a date. And so uh, historians and commentators would say that the book of Amos was written most likely somewhere in the late 700s BC. So 760, 770, somewhere in there is probably when when this was written. And why that's important is because that helps us know what the circumstances were like in the place where Amos was called to preach in Israel. In fact, let me just give you, just for the sake of our conversation, let me just give you a few key historical characteristics that you need to know about the circumstance of Israel and the time that Amos was preaching, okay? So let's just take a look. First off, here's what you need to know. During this time, Israel was experiencing a time of national security. Now, many of you know all throughout Israel's history, they are in a perpetual state of conflict with neighboring nations. Now, that has been Israel's history for a long time and even still seems to be that way today. Yet, during this time in history, underneath the the reign of King Jeroboam II, the Bible tells us they experienced a time of national security. Um, the Bible is going to say in 2 second, in second Kings chapter 14 that underneath the leadership of King Jeroboam II that he had reestablished the borders of Israel. Uh, that would have been like a defense system for that nation. And the Bible is going to tell us that underneath the, the, the leadership of King Jeroboam II that Israel had reestablished itself as the dominant military power of that time. Uh, Israel was relatively unchallenged during this time. 
Uh, they were kind of the military power of their time, right? And, and as a result of that, because they were experiencing national security, that led to this next thing. It was also a time of international peace. And so they began to develop peaceable relationships with the neighboring nations. That opened opportunities for international trade routes to open up. That opened up the opportunity for international business to happen. And as a result of that, because of this national security and this international peace, that led to an economic boom. And so we're going we're gonna to find Israel in the book of Amos in, some commentators believe, the apex of their affluence. Okay? They, they were experiencing economic prosperity like they never had before. In fact, we're going to see, Amos is going to talk about their, 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 their wealth in the book of Amos, and he's going to say that it was normal, if you were a wealthy person in Israel, it was normal to have three houses, normal. You had a summer house, you had a winter house, and then you just had a regular old house. And that was a normal thing. And it's going to talk about the decadent, lavish lifestyle that these people lived. We're going to talk about the fashion, how they had the best of the world in fashion going to talk about their perfumes. He's going to talk about ju just, just the amount of uh, decadence that they lived in, how, how they lined everything with precious metals and precious stones. It's even going to say that they, they lined their beds with ivory, which I don't even know how that would be comfortable. But it's just this, man, this lavish, decadent lifestyle of incredible affluence. And so here's what happened. God's people looked and they said, because we have national security, and because we're experiencing international peace, and because we're experiencing economic prosperity, all of this must be evidence that God is on our side. All of this must just simply be evidence that we have gained God's favor. We must be doing something right. And so they looked at their circumstance and they said, we are doing awesome. God is so pleased with us. Look at how God is blessing us. We are hashtag blessed. Look at all that God has done for us. It's incredible. And they believed that they had it made in the shade with pink lemonade and everything was going just fine until Amos shows up. And when Amos shows up, he delivers a message from God to his people that, that says quite the contrary. He says, that, he says to his people, while you think everything is okay, you are totally oblivious to the fact that you have drifted dangerously far from where God desires you to be. In fact, I want you to notice how Amos begins his message. Amos begins his message unlike any other book of the Bible. Notice in verse 2 what Amos says. Amos said this. He said, so this is the beginning of Amos' message to Israel. This is the first line of his message. Here's how he starts. The Lord roars from Zion, and he thunders from Jerusalem. Man, you see this? The book of Amos, unlike any other book of the Bible, begins with a roar. This book starts with a roar. And the Lord is roaring from Zion. He is thundering from Jerusalem. By the way, Jerusalem and Zion, that was considered the dwelling place of God. That's where the temple would have been. So then the Lord is roaring. It starts with a roar. Uh, man, I just, it's interesting. You know, you read the Bible, God is uh, depicted in many different, there's many metaphors that are given to depict God, right? One of them is uh, God is a shepherd. The Bible talks about, man, God is our shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. He leads us, he guides us, he cares for us. Uh, God is our father, the Bible gives that metaphor. We are his children. He loves us. He cares for us. He provides for us. The Bible actually uses one of the metaphors to speak about God. It says God is a warrior. He's a warrior who fights for his people. Right? That, the, and all, those are different images we see of God, and I think we like those images. But here in Amos, we see a different image. And what is the Lord depicted as in Amos? He's a lion. He's a lion who is roaring, who's thundering from Zion. Now, let me ask you guys a quick question here, all right? For a shepherd, Amos was a shepherd, from Tekoa, a small little town. This guy would lead his sheep through the wilderness, guide his sheep through the hill country, protect his sheep. What did a lion's roar mean to a shepherd? Well, man, just think about it. It meant something serious, right? What would it mean if you were a shepherd and you heard a lion? Well, here's what it would mean. First off, uh, it would mean danger. It would mean, uh-oh, uh right, trouble. If I was a shepherd and I heard a lion roar, for me, it would mean it's time to change my pants. That's what it would mean, right? <laughs> Danger, trouble, right? It, it means, listen, it means urgency. If you hear a lion roar and you're a shepherd, it means I need to get out of this circumstance now. It's not like, you know what, after lunch, we should probably figure out how we can change our circumstance here. It's like, no, 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 urgency. If I'm a shepherd, I'm like, I gotta get the flock out of here now, <laughs> right? 
literally, I got to get this flock of sheep out of here. And that is urgency. It means, listen, it means repentance. You guys know what repentance is? Repentance literally means you're going one way and then you turn around and you go the other way. That's what it means. When you hear a lion roar, it means stop going that way. Destruction. Turn around. Don't walk. Run. That's what it means. And so when Amos starts his message, he sees the Lord is roaring from Zion. And here's the question. Here's the question that God's people would have asked. And here's the question that maybe we would ask is this. Why? Why is God roaring? Why the urgency? Why the repentance? Why the danger? Why is God mad? Is this just like another Old Testament story where God's real mad at his people? Like, is that what's going on here? Why? And listen, here's why. Remember, Amos is a wake-up call to God's people. It's God in his grace trying to, to, to awaken his people to how far they've drifted and to call them back into his heart. So the question is, how do they drift then? How do they drift? Well, let me just give you a quick snapshot of the ways that they drifted. And, and, and I'm not going to get too deep into it because in this series, uh, we're going to get deeper into each one of these. But let me just show you some of the ways that God's people drifted according to the book of Amos, kind of a high-level overview. We're going to find in the book of Amos that one of the ways that God's people drifted was they drifted from, into the neglect of the poor and the needy. So what we're going to find is that God's people who were called by his name, who were called to represent his heart, the Bible's going to say that because of their affluence and because of their wealth and because of their riches and because of their entertainment, uh, that they had, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with those things, but the Bible says that they fell in love with those things and they became greedy and they became self-absorbed and as a result of that, they became so comfortable in their own lives and their own lifestyles that they began to turn a blind eye and they would neglect the poor and the needy. The Bible's going to tell us that, that in Israel itself, there was poor and needy, and they would oftentimes suppress them or even oppress them for the sake of personal gain. And they neglected the needs of the poor and needy, and God looks at them and he says, you have drifted dangerously far from my heart. In your affluence and in your entertainment and in your wealth, you have drifted. You have drifted into a hoarding mentality, into a self-indulgent lifestyle. And you've neglected the poor and you've neglected the needy and you haven't viewed these incredible resources as a blessing to be shared, but as a blessing to be hoarded. God's gonna come in this book. He's gonna say, man, you've drifted into a corruption of justice. The justice system in Israel was broken and it did not represent God's heart. In fact, we're gonna see that the justice system in, in the time of Israel, the poor got poorer and the rich got richer. We're going to see that, that, that in, the, in the court system, if you were rich enough, you could buy justice. If you had the money, you could buy justice. But if you were poor, the system was set up in such a way that it would suppress you so that the, it, it would exploit you so that the rich would get richer. We're going to see that oftentimes people, the Israelites, were selling their own people into slavery for profit and for gain. And so God says, you have drifted so far. We're going to see in the book of Amos that God's people had drifted into self-sufficient arrogance because of their national security, because they were unchallenged by the other nations, because they were the prominent military power. They started to have this sense of self-congratulating arrogance where they said, man, we're awesome. No one can stop us. And God looks, he says, you've drifted. They said, we don't need God. We can do it ourselves. And we're going to see that this nation, God's people, they actually drifted into empty religion it's interesting, what we're going to find is, throughout the book of Amos, God's people are actually deeply religious people. Uh, they go to church every week. They, they, they engage in religious ceremonies to the T. Uh, they would sing worship songs with passion and enthusiasm in their voices. And yet, in Amos chapter 5, God is actually going to come to his people, and he's going to say to them, I hate your religious ceremonies. I can't stand your songs. I don't want to hear your singing anymore. And why? He's going to say, because outwardly, you're going through the motions of what it looks like to worship me, but inwardly, your hearts are far from me. Your hearts are far from me. They drifted into empty religion. We're going to see that they drifted into sexual immorality. God's people who were called by his name, the Bible says that they started to adapt the sexual practices of their time. The sexual climate of the nation surrounding them began to become the sexual climate of the nation of God's people themselves. And as a result of that, they drifted into some really, really crazy stuff. We're going to see that in the series. We're going to see in the series that they drifted into a compromise, to compromising God's word, God's commandments. 
Uh, because there was a plurality of religions that were represented in the other nations, and because they had international peace with these other nations, they started to fall into syncretism, where they, they picked and choosed aspects of different religions, and they kind of made their own version. This is what I think it means to follow God. And they drifted from that. And, and what we're going to see is that while they drifted in all these ways, they were totally oblivious. They had no idea. They thought that they were experiencing God's favor. They thought they were experiencing God's blessing, and yet God comes in, and the Bible says that he roars from Zion. That God, the message of Amos begins with a roar. It is an alarming, jolting wake-up call that we're going to see in the book of Amos. Now, for some of you, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, that's interesting. Um, That's great historical background, neat to hear about some of that stuff. But maybe maybe you're thinking to yourself, okay, yeah, but so what? Like, what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with us here in 21st century America, Medina, Ohio? What does that have to do with us? Well, here's the thing, and I don't think it's going to take much to convince you of this, but I think it's a mistake um, in the book of Amos and any other book of the Bible for that matter. I think it's a mistake to look at a book like Amos and say, that's just some ancient book written by some ancient dude in some ancient time to some ancient people about some ancient God. I think it's a mistake to do that. Now, of course, it is true. Amos was written nearly 2,700 years ago into a very particular situation. However, I believe the reason that God has preserved the book of Amos and by the power of his Holy Spirit has allowed us, for those of us who follow Jesus in this room, he's allowed us as God's people to have this and to study this is because this is not simply a message for God's people back then. This is a message to God's people today as well. He's preserved it for us. It's an act of his grace to help us, to wake us up in the ways that we have drifted from his heart and call us back into the places where he wants us to go. See, because here's here's what I know. I I know this, man. When you look at the background and the facts and the details of, of the situation you see in Amos, it is chillingly relevant to us. I mean, you think about what the nation experienced, what God's people were experiencing with national security and international peace and what they were experiencing with economic prosperity. And you think of the ways they drifted. And man, I'm just telling you, that is chillingly relevant to us. For those of us who follow Christ here in our society, in our cultural moment that we find ourselves in today. It's because here's what I know. I know that in the same way that God's people back then were susceptible to drifting obliviously, from God's heart. You and I, for those of us who follow Christ, we are equally as susceptible to drifting in the same ways. We're not exempt from this. And we all drift. We all drift. All of us who follow God, there's a dangerous drift that takes place. My guess is that if you're a follower of Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a natural drift that takes place where our heart dangerously drifts from God's heart. And see, here, here's a few things that I know because this is true of God's people then and it's true of God's people now. Here's the first thing. This drift, the reason we're so susceptible to it is because this drift, first and foremost, it's subtle. The dangerous drift from the heart of God that occurs is a drift that happens subtly. It happens subtly with the Israelites 2,700 years ago. It happens subtly today with those of us who follow God. It's not something that happens overnight. It's not something that happens in a moment It is a series of choices, it is a series of decisions, it is a series of habits, it is a series of acts of disobedience that accumulate over time, and as that happens, one day you wake up and all of a sudden you realize, man, how in the world did I get over here? There's a drift that occurs. I think all of us can relate to this. For for example, maybe for some of you, you're here this morning, and um, maybe this is the first time you've been to church in a long time, Right? Which, which, by the way, if it's the first time you've been to church here in a long time, man, we're so glad you're here. And if you're trying to get reconnected to church and it's been years since you've done that and now you're kind of, man, welcome back. And we love it that you're here. And we're so excited. We want to help you get reconnected to, to, to following God and pursuing his people together. We want that. But my guess is if you're a person, maybe it's been months or it's been years since you've been connected to the church. If I asked you, how's that happened? Like maybe there was a time that you were connected and you were involved and all of a sudden you weren't. If I asked you how that happened, you'd be like, man, I don't even know. But I know how it happened. It happened subtly because that's how this drift happens. It happened subtly. I got busy and then some time passed and then some more time passed and then all of a sudden it was years. And how in the world did I get over here? And it happens subtly. 
Maybe if you're a follower of Jesus, you can relate to this. Maybe there was a time in your life, listen, maybe there was a time in your life, man, when you were passionate, you were so passionate about loving and following Jesus, and that, that was the, man, you, were, you, were, you had this, this white hot fire in your heart to make Jesus the defining relationship in your life, and you were like, man, I just want to follow God, I just want to worship God, I just want him to be the centerpiece. Maybe there was a time in your life when that was the case. But if you were being really honest, maybe the memories of that are months old, maybe even years old. And maybe today you find yourself in a situation where your, your heart is cold and your relationship with God is lifeless. And yeah, you go through the motions and you check stuff off the boxes, but geez, man, there's that fire that you once had is gone. And you might be saying, man, how did I get here? And, and I'll tell you, it, it happened subtly. That's how you got here. It happened subtle. We're all susceptible to the drift. Maybe for you there was a, there was a, a, a habit in your life, a destructive habit in your life that at one time, it broke your heart. It broke your heart. And you would plead with God. You'd be like, God, I want, I want to overcome this. God, please help me. I don't want to continue to live with this thing in my life, this habit in my life. It's so destructive. But, but now you find yourself in a place where you've just resigned yourself. You just said, you know what? This is just a normal fact of life. It doesn't even bother you anymore. And the question is, man, how did you get, how did you get here? And the answer is all of us are susceptible to this drift because this drift happens subtly. It happens subtly. It happens subtly. Here's the other thing I know about this drift. We're all susceptible to it. This dangerous drift happens naturally. It's a natural drift that takes place. And here's what I mean by that. Um, there is a natural current and there is a natural flow. Uh, and this natural current and this flow, this drift, is away from the heart of God. Let me, let me put it this way. If you, wanna, if you wanna float down a river, okay, if you wanna float downstream, what do you need to do to do that? The answer is real easy. Nothing, right? Because if you, if you choose to float, you will drift. If you choose to float, you choose to drift. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that ever since Genesis chapter three, ever since sin entered into the world for the very first time, there's a natural flow, there's a natural current, there's an undertow to this world in fact, Romans chapter 12 is going to say it this way. It's going to say there's a pattern to this world. And that flow and that current is always away from the heart of God. It's always away from what God desires for us, right? This is the second law of thermodynamics. Now, you guys know entropy. What is entropy? Everything is drifting from order to chaos. Everything is drifting from life to decay. And that's been true ever since Genesis chapter 3 when, when, when sin first entered into the world. And the Bible's gonna tell us that not only is entropy something that happens in the physical world, it happens in the relational and in the spiritual world as well. Right, just think about it. If you, if you wanna drift in your marriage, if you're married, if you wanna drift into a lifeless, cold marriage with your spouse, what do you need to do to make that happen? The answer's easy. Do nothing. Do nothing. It's naturally gonna drift that way. Why? Because this drift that happens is natural. If you wanna drift in your relationships and in your friendships, what do you need to do to make that happen? The answer is easy. Do nothing because you're naturally going to drift. It's the same thing that's true spiritually. If you want to drift in your relationship with God, what do you need to do? The answer is easy. If you choose to float, you choose to drift. Because here's, here's something I found in my own experience, and maybe you guys have found this to be true as well. My guess is that you have. I have found that I have never met one person who plans to drift. Never met anyone who made a plan and said, my plan is to drift. That's my plan, right? I, I've, done a, I've done like a bazillion weddings, and I've never met a couple on their wedding day when I've talked to them, and, and you know, they're, they're looking at their bride, looking at their groom. I've never met a couple that said, you know what our plan is? Here's our plan. Our plan is that we want to be madly in love for our first two years of marriage. But then our real hope is that like in 10 or 15 years, that we simply become functional roommates. That's our plan. Like, like that's, that's it. We just want to kind of have a cold dissonant, lifeless relationship. That's what we want to do. Like, no one plans to drift, but listen, it happens all the time, all the time. I've never met anyone who says, you know what I want to do? My plan is I want to drift into some really destructive habits in my life. That's what I want to do. So my hope is that in college, maybe I can kind of dabble in the party scene for a little bit for fun, but my hope is that by the time I get in my 30s and 40s, I really speed things up, and then I'm a full-blown addict. That's the plan. No one says that, but it, it happens all the time, right? 
Never met anyone that said, you know what my plan is? I want to drift into becoming a greedy, selfish person who, who is just completely consumed and, and, and the, the, in, in pursuing affluence for myself and, and neglecting the needy and just, consum- and just focusing on that. That's what I want. No one ever plans to do that, but it happens all the time. Drift into that all the time. No one says, you know what my plan is? My plan is, you know, on, on day one, I'm starting my own business. I'm starting this new work position. My hope is that in a few years from now, that maybe I'll slip into some unethical practices. Like, that's what I want to compromise my integrity somewhere along the lines of, like, year three or year four. Like, no one plans to drift, but it happens all the time. And why is that? It's because it's a natural drift. I found that no one plans to drift, but I've also found that seldom people don't plan not to. I think this is why the book of Hebrews says this. Hebrews chapter two, the author says, we must pay the most careful attention. We gotta pay, pay attention to what? To what we've heard, that is God's word. We gotta pay attention to what God says to his heart. Why? So that we don't drift away. We gotta pay attention because if we choose to float, we choose to drift. So you guys, one of the reasons it's so important that we study a book like Amos, and like I said, I'm just gonna be honest with you. Amos's message is not a popular message. It's just not. It's a jolting message, it's an alarming message, it's a challenging message, but here's the thing. It is a message that we need that I think we oftentimes don't think that we need. And we have to be careful to pay attention to what God's heart is, that we don't drift away from his heart, right? Here's the third thing I know. I know this drift is subtle, I know this drift is, this drift is, is something that happens naturally. The third thing is, man, this drift is dangerous. This drift away from God's heart is a very, very dangerous drift. Some of you might be asking, well, how, why is it so dangerous to drift from God's heart? In short, here's the reason why. If we drift from God, we drift from life. We drift from life itself. And when you drift from God, you, you're drifting in dangerous places because you're drifting from the power in the presence of God in your life and in your family and in our church. And to drift from the power and the presence of God in our life is to drift into very, very, very dangerous places. It's really interesting. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, after God gives his commands to his people, he says to his people, he says, I give you now the choice between life and death. He says, if you follow me and you obey me and you stay close to me, you choose life. And he says, and if you, if you disobey and you, and, you, and you go away from my heart, he says, you choose decay. Destruction in your relationships, destruction of the life that I want for you. And so he says, now I want you to choose life, choose life. I think this is why in Amos chapter five, God says this. He says, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, do not seek Gilgal, do not journey to Beersheba. Seek the Lord and live. And by the way, these places, Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, those are places that people would go to try to, to, try to find fulfillment apart from God. And God says, come back to me, come back to me. You've drifted from my heart and I want you to come back to my heart because when you come back to my heart, you experience the power and the presence of me in your life and in your church and in your family. So I believe that the reason that God has given us the book of Amos, that one of the big reasons, is because it's intended to be a wake-up call and it's an invitation in God's grace for us to return back to his heart, to his power, into his presence in ways that we may have drifted that we are completely unaware I believe the book of Amos is really intended to tether us to God's heart in times that we drift. You know, one of the songs that we sing here at Grace Church, you guys may have sang it with us if you come here, or maybe if you grew up going to church, you probably have sang this song. It's an old hymn. It's called Come Thou Fount. It was written by a guy named Martin Luther uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But I love what he says. Even though these lyrics are hundreds of years old, man, they're, they're still just as authentic and just as real today. I want you to notice what Martin Luther says in, in this song. He says, oh, oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. In other words, he says, God, your grace is so awesome and I am so indebted to you. But then notice what he says. He says, God, let your grace now like a fetter. And a fetter, that's kind of a weird term. What that is, it literally was like a chain. It was something that, would, that you would use to tether yourself to something. And so he says, God, I want, I want your grace to be like a fetter. I want it to chain me. And look at this, to bind my wandering heart to thee. I love that. He says, God, my, my heart wanders. My heart drifts. My heart is, it, 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 it meanders. And so I want your goodness. I want your grace to be like a fetter. I want it to bind me to you, God. And then notice what he says. I love this so much. Just the, just the absolute honesty of this lyric. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to, prone to wander. God, I could feel it. 
there was a current, there was a flow, there was an undertow, and it's away from you. And I, my heart wants to drift from you. And then he says, I'm prone to leave the God that I love. He says, man, God, I love you. And I know that the best place to be is, is to be right where you want me to be. That's the best thing, is to be where your power and your presence is. He says, but yet, for some unexplainable reason, I keep drifting, and my heart keeps meandering. And so, God, I pray you would anchor me to you like a fetter. You see, I believe the book of Amos is really that. It's intended to be a fetter to keep our wandering hearts from drifting and to keep us in line with where God's heart wants us to be. So here's what we're gonna do in this series. In this series, like I said, today's an introduction. I just kind of want to whet your appetite a little bit. We're gonna look together at what we're calling seven undercurrents of spiritual drift. And we're gonna talk in the book of Amos about seven ways that we oftentimes drift from the heart of God, the dangerous drift, and oftentimes it happens unconsciously. And our hope is that as we look at these things, it will also teach us what we can do to combat that drift, to stay tethered to the heart of God and to return to his heart as he calls us to do that. So we're gonna be going through this series together. We're gonna be looking at these seven undercurrents. So you're not gonna wanna miss that as we get a chance to journey through these things. I'm gonna ask the band to come up and uh, as they make their way up, I want to just end, like I said, it's an introduction, so we're not going to get too crazy right now, but I do want to end with a challenge, okay? I actually want to give you four simple challenges uh, as we journey through this series, all right? And, and so th- this is a pretty simple challenge, nothing crazy yet. There's probably going to be crazier challenges later, but let me just give you four simple ones, and these four challenges, by the way, are for everybody in the room. So whether it's your first time here or whether you've been coming for a long time, whether you're a person that's investigating Jesus, even if you're investigating Jesus and, and you would say that you're not a Christian, you're still trying to figure that out, I still would triple dog dare you to take me up on this challenge, all right? So that, that's triple dogs, that's, up, that's three. So triple, three, uh, quadruple dog dare you. I just went up on four, there we go. So, so here's my four challenges, ready? Here's the first one. Number one, I actually wanna challenge you to read the book of Amos. If you have never read the book of Amos or if you have read the book of Amos, I wanna challenge you to take some time and actually read that. Now. Like I said, the book of Amos is short. It's only nine chapters. And when I say chapters, by the way, when you think of a regular book, it's not like that. It's like half a page. That's what it is. It's pretty easy to read. However, uh, when you read the book of Amos, be forewarned, just going to warn you, it is a challenging book. And so you are going to encounter names you've never heard of, places you've never heard of. Uh, God is going to be really mad in a lot of the book. And you might struggle with that. You might have some questions. And let me just say, that's okay. That's totally fine. The only reason I want you to read this is I just want you to get a basic feel, an overview of the book. So it's okay if you don't understand everything. It's okay if after you're done reading it, you're like, what in the world did I just read? That's completely cool because as we go through this series, we're going to really dig at it and understand it. So I'd encourage you, read it. Read it with a friend. Read it with your spouse. Um, Maybe not read it with your kids. I'm not sure if that's a good idea. But read Amos. It's a good starting place. Okay, so that's, that's challenge number one. Challenge number two, I want you to pray, if you would, pray that God would use this book to identify areas of drift. Would you pray, even right now, as the band's going to play in just a moment, would you talk to God and say, God, would you help me to see places that I've drifted? And maybe, maybe you can identify some on your own, but the, the truth is there's probably areas that we've drifted from God that we're not even aware of. And so through this series, we want to pray that God would open that up, pray that God would expose areas of drifts in our own life and in our own church. Will we be bold enough to ask God to do that? Here's the third thing I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you if you would approach this series, approach this book with humility, all right? And here's what I mean by that. Would you approach this series with a sense of humility and with a sense of receptivity that says, God, I believe that you've preserved this for us And so I want to hear from you. If you have something you want to say, I want to listen. Would you come with a spirit of receptivity? Would you come ready? Would you come ready in your heart, prepared, not not rushed, not late? I know that happens sometimes, but would you make it a point to come? Bring your Bible, bring a notebook. Come with a sense of humility and expectancy, not to be passive listeners, but to be active in this. Would you you do that? And here's the last thing I want to ask you. Would you approach this book with expectancy? Would you come with a sense of expectancy that when God speaks to us through his word, that it will change us and it will change our lives and it will change our church and that we're ready for that to happen? Would you come with that? So because here's what I know about the book of Amos. I know the book of Amos is extremely powerful. Let me just give you, give you one thing that I know for sure. Back uh, 30 years ago in uh, 1984, 
there's a group of students who graduated from Stanford University and they decided that they were going to spend one summer uh, in community together studying one book of the Bible. They said, we're just going to study one book of the Bible. So they studied the book of Amos. And for the entire summer, they prayed through that book. They studied that book. They sought out to understand the book of Amos. And as a result of that book, this one book, Amos, God so wrecked their hearts that many of them actually changed vocations. They began something that's called Bayshore Christian Ministries, which literally reaches thousands of orphans and needy within the community of Palo Alto, California. And all of that happened because of the book of Amos. And so the question is, what does God want to do in our lives and in our church as a result of this book to us? What does he want to do? And the answer is, I'm not sure. But I'm eagerly excited to find out what God wants to do. And I have a sense of expectancy that I can't wait to see what he's going to do. So these are the four things I want to ask you to commit to. Would you guys be willing to commit to those four things with me as we go through this series? If you would, give me a thumbs up, right? That was weak. Let's try that again. All right, would you guys commit to doing this with me? If you would, give me a thumbs up. That's right. Very good. All right, guys, let's pray together. Well, God, I do just want to say thank you so much for preserving for us this incredible book, the book of Amos. And Father, as we jump into this series, uh, we, we want to be aware that we're not just dealing with some ancient book written by some ancient guy in some ancient culture about some ancient God. This is a message for us. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, as we get a chance to dig into this book together, uh, God, I ask you that you would allow it to to do work in our hearts, give us humility and receptivity, give us expectancy. Father, I pray that as as we hear what you would have to say to us through this series, uh, that message would not only transform our hearts, but that that transformation will work itself into our hands, into our feet, and into our community, and into our world. And, uh, and Lord, we don't know exactly what you want to do and what you want to say to us, uh, but I pray that we would have open ears to hear and that we would have an open mind and open lives, God, that we would be willing to be transformed by you. The truth is we all drift, God. It's just true. It's a natural thing that happens. It's a subtle thing that happens. But God, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous place to be. And I'm so thankful that you and your grace, and sometimes it's your grace that wakes us up. Sometimes it's your grace that comes and forms that are unexpected to help us, God, to be able to redirect our attention to you. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us, God, just uh, for some of us even here today, man, this, this might be uh, a reminder for us to return to you. And for some of us, we've, dr- we've drifted real far. And, um, and God, I, I pray that you would help us to return to your heart because there's no safer place to be than in the will of God. There's no safer place to be than in your presence and in your power. And God, it's a dangerous thing to forfeit that. We don't want to forfeit your power and your presence in our lives. We don't want to forfeit your power and your presence in our church. And so, God, I pray that you would tether our hearts to yours. Help us, God, to stay close to you. Help our hearts to look like your hearts. Help those of us who are called by your name to reflect your character. We just want to ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.